Hello boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. This is Shami Ambran and welcome to another episode of Nasi Lemak Podcast where it is my job to interview people from all different types and different field trying to understand how they think, their views on certain topics, career journey or anything that they really want to talk about. So my guest today is Jotham Lim Ichand. Jotham is a uh, is it correct? I pronounce Jotham <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jotham, yes. Right. Jotham. It's okay. People have been pronouncing, mispronouncing my name like since the dawn of time, so it's it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Jotham is a journalist at the Age Malaysia, focusing on personal wealth and digital age. Uh, he covered many interesting topics such as UBI, business, finance, investments, and many more. Jotham graduated from Utah College and hold a bachelor's degree in mass communications and media studies. He did his internship at Directors Think Tank Sendian Berhad after college. He started his career as a marketing executive and then a brand produ- producer at Winner Dynasty Film Entertainment Sendian Berhad, doing many sort of things. After that, he worked as a writer at Property Inside Malaysia. I believe that is first journalist career. Um, Now, of course, he is working at the Age Malaysia and he's one of the board members of Institute of Journalists Malaysia. If you want to read some of his writings, you can, of course, go to the to the Age News first. But you can also find some of his writing at his WordPress and also Malimil. His WordPress is joolec.wordpress.com. He wrote a lot of great stuff, not just business. For example, unemployment rate in Malaysia and racial issue. Jotam, welcome to the podcast Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's start with your family background. How you were brought up by your parents? Well, I would say that that my family upbringing, uh, in a way, that helped my my development, career development as of right now, is that I speak Mandarin. My mother, I grew up in a very uh, Chinese family, a very uh, Mandarin speaking household. But my father doesn't speak Mandarin. <laughs> When I was a kid, he only speaks right. Hokkien. English, so um, so there's some kind of weird uh, duolingo kind of dynamics going on with my family. So I've been speaking right. uh, primarily English for most of my family members, but I grew up in a very Mandarin background. But being one of the, essentially, I'm just a banana. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so English was not a very difficult subject for me as a as a child, but I never planned on becoming a journalist. It's just somehow I stumble upon this career midway through my career development and I just somehow stuck to it. So here's where I am. Uh, I see. So it's not like uh, when you decide to do mass communication to decide like I want to become a journalist. It's not, is it? Uh, not really. <laughs> when I was uh, started, uh, studying broadcasting was because I'm interested in filmmaking. I because uh, prior to all of my stint as a marketing dude, as a as a, as a journalist, I was actually a filmmaker. I, I was a passionate filmmaker. I uh, made videos on YouTube with my yep. friends you know, in college. And um, so, yeah, and the, the story of how I ended up becoming a journalist was because of a misconception. While, while working for um, Property Insight, I was looking for a new job. They mm. were looking for a, a editorial editor. Mm. I was a video editor, mm. <laughs> so there's some uh, a bit of mix up regarding the job description, like on LinkedIn or Job Street at that point in time. But but then it's like, oh, okay. It turns out that we have a miscommunication. But then I asked, hey, what other positions do you have in the company right now? Because you know, I'm looking for a new job, anyways. And then they said that, oh, we have a position for a writer. Uh, would you like mm. to join? Uh, okay, I'll try my hand at becoming a writer. So uh, I just sent a few sample uh, write-ups that I had. 
and tada, I've become a journalist. <laughs> but, uh, okay, uh, did, did you like at but did you at college? Did you do a lot of writings? Um, you know, besides yeah, if you consider thesis as writing, yes. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh, okay. <laughs> thesis right. assignment, but uh, but writing wasn't uh, a, I wouldn't say it's a huge passion, mm. but I would say stories is a huge passion because in in filmmaking, regardless of whether it's journalism or like media and audio entertainment, like everything revolves around storytelling. So um, filmmaking is a visual medium tool, mm. whereas writing is, um, is, is, a, is a written text tool. So as long as you can uh, express stories in a, in a very coherent and uh, interesting manner, I, I, I believe that it's, it's a skill that transcends different mediums. You know what mm, I mean? Yeah. So your first career as a writer at Property Inside Malaysia so what does your job look like for you and what are your priorities in terms of executions? What do you have to do on the first day and how do you put it? Okay, this priority that I have to do and to make sure that you always do it right. Uh, back when I would join Property Inside, there were only, uh, I think I was the only one that managed to stay longer than three months. <laughs> right. All right. So the editorial team was quite oh. small. Uh, ah. Generally, there's only two or three of us. I, mm. I think there's a few editors that came and go. Mm. Uh, but so essentially I'm working mostly by myself so in in a way it's quite uh, self-taught wow. it's in a way it's like uh, I have to I have to come up with stories on my own accord I have to approach companies on my own accord there wow. was never a crash course but my previous stint as a as a so-called brand producer in Reno Films has actually prepared uh, me a bit for this kind of job because uh, I mean the title brand producer sounds very nice but essentially yeah. my job is is a salesperson essentially to try wow. to my, my job used to be uh, we had a program on mm-hmm. China's uh, CCTV program we have a slot over there so uh, we are making documentaries and we need to uh, pretty much the same thing as we're doing right now interview SMEs interview like prominent people to, to mm-hmm. share the life stories but this time in a documentary format for uh, China's CCTV so my job is actually secure these people to come on the show and these people if they want to appear in a, in a much more proper manner or, or mm-hmm. a, a much more uh, nicer light they have to pay to be on the show oh. uh, so my job is actually approach and and uh, these people right and, and ask them to be on the show so i i guess i have some kind of experience actually like meeting clients scheduling planning cold calling you know I, i've been through the whole sales process and then uh, that's also partially the partially the reason that i said you know what i don't do this anymore and I managed to find a job becoming a writer, which somehow shares similar skill sets because uh, to be able to communicate efficiently, to be able to like schedule and yeah. cor- speak corporate speak essentially uh, has prepared me for the job uh, in, in a way. Mm. So property, so technically when you first started at your career at property in Malaysia, it's sort of like an environment, um, startup environment, right? Because you have to do so many different things. Oh yes, it's it's considered a small company because I would say that the magazine is just a branch of the entire company. So the editorial team, like me mm. and the designer and my editor, probably just three of us. Of course, like throughout my my stand there, there's uh, there's people come and go, but generally speaking, uh, I never work with more than four people at a time. So and as the writer myself, like being the one writing all the stuff, it's generally just two or three of us. So yeah, mm. <laughs> it's just wow, a very small interesting um so since you learned all these things right what are the interesting facts you learned about first your job as a writer at property in malaysia and also 
what are things that you learn, some facts that you gather um, when you cover about property in Malaysia? What are some interesting facts? Interesting facts. I mean, most of the so-called interesting facts are no longer interesting because you know, they're news and <laughs> news come and go. But but when it comes to insights, uh, I guess because I my family background, I my maternal side of my family is actually from a property industry. So mm. I guess I do have a some of an idea of how the property industry works, but generally it's in Penang. So now oh. I come to um, uh, KL, like I basically I have a deeper insight of how the property industry works on on uh, on the city level, mm. and seeing uh, speaking to a few like uh, CEOs and Tantris and Datosuris etc. And what strikes me as interesting is generally the the thought process has largely remained kind of the same. Like regardless of what kind of company like property uh, industry, the people that I've interviewed so far they share a, a lot of similar characteristics. Like what what makes one property developer different than the other is mainly towards the direction, probably their, uh, their, their direction of thinking, but the way they operate is very similar. It's very, mm. I would say, China managed, I would say, but it's not really China managed, <laughs> okay. but in a good way. That means uh, like making promises and delivering on those promises, uh, focus on the bottom line, uh, profitability is always on the table. Um, very family-centric kind of business model. They do uh, pass on like some of the important roles to their family members as well. So yeah, it's kind of the same. That we find it, this is something I find quite interesting. It's not as corporate as I thought it would be. You know, it's not like Sandabi or something like Petronas where it's an officially corporate environment. Mm. You know, property industry is still very uh, family-based from what I've seen. Mm. When... Um, I'm quite curious in these things. When when you get all these CEOs and transferees, right? How did you just get know their email from someone and then sort of just keep on sending them an email, or you go through LinkedIn or Twitter or anything platforms? How did you get them to you know talk to you? Well, thank goodness there's the entire industry that is built on top of this called the public oh. relations industry. <laughs> so many of these companies, they employ public relations personnel. They have their corporate comms department. They generally have a go-to person that manages all the media content. Because mm-hmm. uh, because like even though Property Insight, uh, truth to be honest, it's not a very huge magazine, but it is still exposure and uh, free exposure nonetheless. So uh, there's public relations officers that actually like, reach out and say, hey, actually we... Uh, we are pursuing this so and so project. Would you like to interview our our building manager or our our chief marketing officer? And then that's why you start building. You build up rapport with your populations, you, uh, some of the companies, some of the agencies, some of the core key personnel that you get to know like across time. And then they manage to bring you very good contacts and bring you good stories. Mm. A lot of people assume that journalists are like the the primary like source of information because that's what the mass media actually sees. You know when we publish stories that's the first thing they see or oh, it's journalists publishing this information but what many people do not realize is actually I, I view ourselves as like a secondary layer of information because some of the press releases or some of the informations even some of the interviews are structured has been gone through a rigorous due diligence process uh, they have been um, filtered there's been uh, monitored that like, like okay take for example if you want to ask questions regarding um, the the stock prices of glove Mm. or, or yeah. stock prices or, or gold, or for example. Mm. Uh, I do not have those information. Yes, I have a Bloomberg terminal in the office, etc. But mm. but in regarding the raw information, regarding analysis, I have to get it from an economist. And mm. these economists pump out this information on a constant basis. Mm. 
uh, through the emails, through press releases. And my job is basically just knowing the right people, finding the right stories, finding something that adds value to our readers and just you know, writing a story about it. When in terms of like when you interview people, you have to pay them, right? So this public relations also in charge of um, in charge of the payment, is it like um, how much you have to pay them, the price oh, for each person? Not really payment per se. Okay, uh, public relations uh, companies or even corporate comms department, their job is to make sure that uh, their company is in the limelight mm. in the news organizations and mm. to make sure they are presented in a, in a suitable manner, I would mm. say. Like they deal with crisis management. If there's like some company gone through is a huge issue, they are they are there to make sure that it doesn't boil over, it doesn't hurt their branding image as much. So mm. in terms of payment, it's not really like payment per se. It's like, um, in terms of like editorial stuff, editorials we don't get paid being editorial. You, mm. We we seek out companies, we seek you out, and I want to have a story. You have information for my mm. story, and now I'm interviewing you to get that story. There's no payment involved. But some companies treat um, treat news organizations as a marketing platform, which to be fair, it can be. You know, that's how we survive. You know, my salary is paid by advertisers advertising our platform. So other than just uh, straight up colored ads on the newspaper, there are black and white ads. There are also like advertorials, which is basically editorial pieces that is actually an advertisement. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the good news is for DH is we make our advertorials quite uh, very prominent we, like people read through the articles they know that this is an advertorial because there's a different font so it's a different style of writing and obviously there's branding materials all over it so it's obvious that it's branding material but for the normal stories it's quite obvious that we don't really get paid to do any of this mm-hmm. so where the PR company comes in is they get paid by the client companies to basically promote their companies through media rather than through the normal marketing channels mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, you are currently working at the Age Malaysia. How does it different with your work at the the property inside Malaysia? Oh, definitely, it's very different in the sense of the scale. Like, uh, I used to work with like mostly by myself and my editor, like mm. two or three editors during my short right. stint over there. But but here in here in DH Malaysia, I have a, I think a team of around seven eight people around me right now. And my, my editor, the support system is definitely that we have dedicated departments for uh, the the TV stuff. We have a dedicated departments for the graphic designs. We have a dedicated de- department for the sub editors. So everything is much more structured. Everything is much more organized. So I can focus on doing what I'm supposed to do, which is to find stories and churn out stories. Mm-hmm. So I would say that my job has been simplified uh, by a lot, actually, by the fact that everything is structured. It's much more structured. It's not like a startup environment where you have to wear multiple hats, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of support structure, it's also like not there's somewhat like a peers. You have peers where you can compare your stories to you. You can see what kind of uh, stories that your your friends cover, and you're trying to say, okay, they're covering these sort of stories. What what can I cover that's slightly different? What is my tone? What is my angle? Like like take for example, like in personal wealth, we have one colleague that is specializes in in cryptocurrency stuff, mm-hmm. and we have another colleague that specializes in robot advisory stuff. Uh, so where do I fit in a picture? And somehow, some way or another, I ended up becoming the guy who writes about gold and writes about beats. Right. <laughs> so yeah, we, we have to find our own identity in this entire ecosystem. So first of all, I would say is the, the structure. Uh, the job scope is somewhat different. But I would say the most important part is, uh, is, is the enjoyment factor. I think I enjoy working uh, for DH markets uh, much more than a small, small uh, company because... 
uh, ultimately, journalism is still somewhat a creative endeavor. Mm. And it's quite common to hit like writer's blocks. And mm. uh, having a, a support system of other writers around you will, will feed you more in market information. Now you're much more informed regarding what's going on in the market. But also, uh, you're, you're much more, like they can help you through certain like writer's block. You know, you, you have much more inspiration. You can talk to people and get all the help you need to, to draft your stories. So when you talk about, just when you're talking about gold and you're talking about cryptocurrency, so you really have to be almost expert in this thing, as in like, do you have to read all of these books, crypto or gold, like for example, your colleague is uh, cryptocurrency, so he has to read all of books uh, related to cryptocurrency before he writes something, or he can just get facts from someone else and then he just sort of be good at writing all those facts that he gets. I would say it's a mixture of both because like uh, if, if you're working for, let's say, um, uh, let's say Digital Age, I'm mm. covering stories and companies from wildly different companies. Right. You have some from the oil and gas sector, you have some from the glove sector, you have some from the tech startup, some in blockchain. And if you were to at least study uh, deeply in each and every industry, uh, your mind will probably explode. <laughs> right. So um, the, the fortunate part about being a journalist is you are not, required to be an expert in the subject. Uh, I think it's, bad, it's very important to phrase that, that journalists, I mean, personally, I do not speak to a lot of, I cannot speak for many journalists. I just probably right. can speak for myself. But I believe that, that is, journalists should, should not be treated as experts. They are the loudspeakers. We, what we do is we get comments from credible people, from very insightful people, and we share their message to the entire world. And you, if me, myself, studying up on cryptocurrency, studying on the gold like markets and everything will help in shaping that story to be a much more coherent, be a much more insightful manner to, to add more value to our readers. Then, yeah, sure, uh, I should study on the subject. But should I be an expert in that field so much so that I can actually fight you know, the right. person I'm interviewing? I don't think that's the case because I just need to know enough to formulate an, uh, formulate an understanding so that I can have a proper conversation so I can uh, relay that those information from these experts to the actual public. Journalists uh, is less of an expert and more of a loudspeaker for people that matter. And we edit and we uh, edit the content, we shape the content to make it much more uh, meaningful, mm -hmm. I would say. So you have interviewed many people from diverse backgrounds. So who are the most interesting people you've met during your career as a journalist? And what are the most important lessons you learned from them? Who are the most interesting people? I mean, that de depends on what you define as interesting. <laughs> uh -huh. Because I would say that um, most of the interviewees that I've had so far, they are very wildly different people. They come from very different backgrounds and they think very differently. So in my opinion, all of them are interesting because all of them have something that I do not. All, all of them have uh, uh, offered insights and add values to stories in a way that other people can't. So by that definition alone, all of them are interesting because I do not know about their lives. I don't know how they think. I don't know what their thoughts on certain matters. And all of them are potential story ideas. So mm. all of them has to be very interesting. But, um, but what I will say is, since just now you bring up the conversation of, oh, there are different data series, like time series, um, to a certain point when you, get, when you sit in front of them face to face, those titles don't really matter. Like uh, Tanshree's insights is not necessarily uh, any more insightful than an uh, engineer per se, because all of them have their own realm of expertise. All of them have their, their different nuggets of information. They are very different from one another. So 
in front of the interviewer, which is myself, all of them are kind of equal. All of them are just resources for information that, that and how can I translate those information that is beneficial to our readers. When you interview them, right, you have all the list of questions. What Do you have any other team would also help you to make sure that the question you ask um, is appropriate questions, not sensitive questions? Um, and also, like, how do you make sure that you don't embarrass yourself when you're interviewing people? To avoid embarrassing yourself, to make sure you get what you want, there are two important things you need to pay attention to. One is to come up with an angle straight up. So that when you interview someone, you have to make sure that the questions are, uh, are within the realm of the story angle that you set out for yourself. Yes, the, the, the interviewer might, like, interviewee might actually offer insights that's outside of uh, what you want to cover. So let's say, uh, very, give a very simple example. Let's say I want to uh, do a comparison between Malaysian reads versus Singaporean reads. Anything else outside of that scope to me is less important. It's still very important, but it will be less important. The question that I come up with are shaped around that central team. So um, in terms of research, I just need to research enough to understand that central team. Of course, like if I have enough time, then I will research about the entire read structure as a whole. You know, you can you can go, it's, it's a rabbit hole that you can go down into. You can you can study read out on their regulations, you can start reading up on like how how the structure works, you can start reading up like who are the people that actually occupy each and different properties, etc. You can go down the rabbit hole. But what anchors uh, the journalists, I would say it's a story angle. Make sure that that whatever question you ask serves the purpose of the story and second mm. is do your due diligence like before you pursue interview make sure that you understand who you're interviewing understand their background uh, research like what they have done in the past if they have issued up press releases they have appeared in the media before in the past see what they talk about see what what generally you can have a general understanding of what they care what they are like from how they appear in the media in the past which will help shape your experience in when it comes to your own interviews. Mm, I see. So in terms of questions, you all the questions is from you when you ask people. It's not like someone else also tried to contribute something. It really depends on what kind of story you're talking about. Okay. Like uh, if, if you're talking about like huge stories, let's say DH Malaysia covers YMDB, uh, that one is a, a team effort. That one co could be a potentially a company-wide effort to actually solve, uh, to cover stories such as this. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, for especially for stories for digital age, is it can be a very solo endeavor. Um, because the stories are not huge, you know, you're talking about making comparisons between one asset to versus another asset. You're, you're, you're interviewing a single company about like how, how they operate their business model, how they, they manage to pivot during COVID-19. Like these are considered small stories that like, so you don't really need to prepare a lot. You don't have a team effort behind all of this. Of course, you know, some like now, nowadays, there's a lot of internships going on around. Uh, you might have an internship and there that probably you can coach, you can bounce ideas with. Uh, they can have a soundboard for you to voice your opinion and say, hey, uh, you want to pursue this interview? Uh, what do you think about this? Something like that. But generally speaking, most, uh, especially for my team, most people work alone. And yeah, all the questions they have to come up, you know, everything is right. from their own. And how you come up with questions, again, is a story angle and your research. Mm, I see. How do you make sure your writing is, you have a correct grammar and your writing structure is excellent? The standard quality of your work is excellent. How do you make sure that you maintain that standard? 
I would say that guitar plays a huge role. I mean, like, of course, you hear horror stories, especially during the golden age of journalism, maybe during the 1990s or maybe early 2000s, where, where you know, it's, you, you watch Spider-Man. Yep, yep. You watch how the editor screams at the writer's face. Give me the story. What, what's wrong with this comma? Why can't you spell this correctly? Of course, right. there's like screams and shouts. And uh, I would say that happened. That does happen in Malaysia in the past. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't around to see it yet, but from what I've heard from my colleagues, yes, that is generally how editors are. They can be quite scary, especially when you screw up a certain grammar mistake or, or one way or another. But as time goes on, you know, like the editors have mellowed out, but they still teach you, they still tell you that, hey, Jotam, you shouldn't use this uh, US variant of style of writing. You have to make sure that you follow uh, DH house style. Like, like how, let, let, for example, how do you write a date? <laughs> it, it, each publication have a different style of writing a date. You could put the months first, you can put the date the first, what kind of format? Just make sure you stick to the house style. And generally, uh, DH, we have a, a list of house styles that we can reference to. So just in case you don't know how to spell it, you do, like, let's say the United Kingdom or UK, like should we should we like capitalize it? Where should we capitalize? Uh, stuff like that. Yeah, we can just reference the house style, and generally that got you covered. So you have the first layer, which is the editor to help you, and second, I will say reading a lots and lots of reading. I mean, if you read articles on a constant basis, you you get the journalism speak. You know, all journalists have a certain style of writing or a certain way of conveying the information. I mean, if you go to uh, like uh, mass comm school or like journalism school, they teach you about the reverse pyramid. Like you should put the most important information up top. There's general guidelines. Once once you've done three or four of these, you generally have a hang of it. You generally know how to structure your story. You 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 can probably example would be uh, put the most information up top. Uh, you voice out the problem and then you then you write the solution. You first state what's the problem and you state what's the solution and how do these companies arrive to that solution. They generally have there's very simple formats that you can just stick to. Uh, and in terms of grammar specifically, I guess uh, thank God for Grammarly. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, services online right now on the market that uh, actually helps check your grammar and make sure that your like make sure the punctuations are correct, etc. And uh, I personally I find those services very helpful. Uh, those services uh, do not replace journalists. Uh, of course, that there's uh, AI writers nowadays in the market that actually write oh. stories like that. But uh, I would say there's still a charm in, when it comes to writing like news stories because again, uh, journalism is is a balance between a scientific uh, method of there's a structured method, a time uh, time tested method of sharing stories in the most effective manner, but ultimately it's still a creative endeavor. Like you are the one that decides what's the stories in the room, but you are the one that decides on the story angle. You are the one who decides how to approach the interview from which, from what kind of manner. So it's still a creative endeavor. It's a mixture of both. Um, interesting. Just now you mentioned about AI writers. So you are referring to artificial intelligence writing. Am I correct? Yes, there's a lot of these solutions right now in the market, actually. Right. So um, I read about it. So it says that sort of like sometimes AI can do so much better than a journalist or sometimes it can replace the journalist writing. So is it like um, actually true? Is it, is it, do you think it's going to happen in the next, let's say, two decades, two, two decades? Um, do you think that might happen? I mean, it really depends on what 
okay, uh, these AI writers, they serve a very specific purpose. When, when, you know, when you read the news headlines, oh, actually this AI, so-and-so AI can replace journalists or writers in the near future, uh, blah, blah, blah. But uh, what, what this, um, these stories, first of all, you need to realize what an AI does. Those people mm. who actually wrote about like how these AIs can replace all the writers, they don't really understand how what how exactly does AI work mm. and what purpose, what specific purpose that those AI writers is trying to serve. Because I say uh interpreting a press release is a very simple brain-dead job. It's very easy to teach an intern how to process a press release because there's right. always a, the same few guidelines you need to do. First, you read through the story, you find the most important keywords, you find what's the most important thing in the entire press release to put in the first paragraph. Then you put in the first paragraph. And the second paragraph is how you uh, use points to justify the first paragraph. Mm. And the third paragraph is generally almost always a quote by some tantri or from some CEO or some like key marketing officer. For writing and processing press release, it is a uh, there's a format, and generally, if you stick to that format, you wouldn't you wouldn't get in trouble. And uh, right. and coming back to what I mean by different types of writing, because writing for daily newspaper, let's say like the Star, Malaysia, Kini, Malay Mail, the the style of writing for those kind of stories is very different than the style of writing for for like the age like digital age stories where where it's a weekly where it's we are not a daily newspaper. We don't really pursue like really up to date news that that like somewhat become obsolete the day after. We pursue stories that have a bit of weight, have a bit of longevity. So uh, it's not uncommon for us to schedule like three or four people at one time. So those kind of those kind of weeklies, those kind of like interpretive, very analysis type of writing is very hard to be replaced by AI because again, it's a creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about um, uh, daily newspaper, you're talking about, let's say, crime statistics, the crime news, where, where suddenly the police right. issue a report. It's very easy for the AI to pick up on the numbers. It's very easy for the AI to pick up what's the content, what's the most important point. And then it's very easy for that to self-edit, to create a new story based on that press release. There's a very simple input and there's a very simple output. But those AIs is very difficult for much more, like I mentioned, much more analysis kind of stories. So I'm I'm not really afraid of being having my job being replaced by the AI, uh, right. because the truth of the matter is 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 happening all over the place right now. If you look over in the internet, you can find out that a lot of these kind of weird kind of websites that actually like steal stories from news organizations. Like 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 there's like say a millennial article will somehow appear somewhere in xnx.com.my as a blog post for right. some reason. Because there's a lot of these kind of web scrapers out there in market. And to me, AI writers is basically around the same ballpark, essentially. Uh, I see, I mm. see. Um, how do you make sure, uh, because you write a lot uh, about uh, business, how do you make sure your, your fact is correct? All the figures, numbers. Um, I see your investment stories all requires figures. And how do you make sure that it is correct? I would basically classify my figures into two separate types. Uh, the first type is data or information that I can verify and data information I cannot verify. And this is very important, especially for private companies. Because here's the thing, let's say I want to interview like the production amount, the production speed, uh, the, the inventory of a certain company. The only person in the entire world that has that information is the company itself. Yep. And so if I interview the company and they give me false information, there's no way for me to verify that. And, and I'm not an auditor. It's not my job to actually like go, like go into the company and actually verify what they say is true. Right. Obviously, uh, I'm not sure. They, so nobody can ever know for sure like 
it possibly my interviewee had possibly cheated and lied to me about their figures. It is tot totally possible, but um, there's really not a way for us to identify and rectify it, uh, to actually verify it because only they have those information. So generally for those information, I just have to take their word at face value and actually trust their words, essentially, because there's no way for me to verify. Unless it's, it's related to a very specific corruption case or something. Unless we dive into investigative journalism. So let's say mm -hmm. a very simple figure of like, what's your money visitor come to a website? It's a very simple number. Yes, you can probably bullshit, you can probably spike up the numbers, but ultimately, even if the numbers is off by maybe a few thousand figures, it doesn't really impact the story a lot. But let's say you're talking about corruption scandal. Uh, so you talk about YMDB and study financial information. The books have been altered. And then they say that the, the numbers are this, but in fact, the numbers are actually that. And if there's a investigative journalism story there, then sure, I will pursue it and actually try to audit and try to get inside, like trying to get information regarding that. But most of the time, we do not see the need to do so. And then here comes the second type of uh, information, which is information that you can verify. And this is very useful, especially for uh, personal finance stories, where they say that, oh, actually the gold prices have gone on by XX amount. Well, it's easy to verify that because I got a Bloomberg terminal machine over there that can tell me that whatever they say is true. Mm -hmm. And generally, most of them are quite honest in like, like the facts and figures because uh, possibly like plus minus one to 2% or 3%, like, not, not say interest rate, but most of the time is the margin error is well comfortable in the realm of like, the margin error is quite healthy, I would say. Uh, so I do not see any information, uh, any problems with that essentially. See, what are the common mistakes made by novice journalists and probably you yourself made during your earliest day as a journalist? Um, when I first had my first, of course, my first interview versus my current, my latest interview is very different, especially at the point where I, I didn't have any hand holding guidance or whatsoever. Um, my first time interviewing a dato is very intimidating. It's very, very scary. Right. But after a while, it seems fine. Everything seems to mellow down. You've meet different kinds of people. You, you meet uh, very unsuccessful people with very huge egos. It's quite common uh -huh. out there. And then you have, re uh, you have meet uh, very successful people with huge egos. Mm -hmm. But then the, the opposite is the same as well. You meet very successful people. They have really, like, like they have pride, but they have not a lot of huge ego. And then there are people that are very prideful. So it, there's people across all spectrums. And then the sudden realization that, that you know, these kind of people are everywhere. So you can probably throw a rock and hit a dato right now in the street. So there's nothing, there's no cause for, for fear. There's, there's nothing like you shouldn't be afraid of trying to interviewing people because at the end of the day, they're just a dude uh, that, that somehow ended up in the position where they're in. Right. Like, like like previously I interviewed a Tanshu. I cannot really like delve or what's the name. You can read my stories, you kind of know who he is already. But I just interviewed a Tanshu and yeah. he just reminds me of my uh of a very it reminds me of uh, uncle back home. You know, he's not oh. he doesn't he doesn't speak, he doesn't act like a like a, someone in his position. He right. sounds like someone that's passionate about his business, to sound like someone's uh with a very engineering technical background that somehow ended up being having a tantric title. And he's really chill dude, you know. Mm. And then so yeah, there's there's nothing to be afraid of, essentially. That's the first thing. And I guess the most second part it would be like how to start and how to write stories essentially like like for the first few stories that i've written like opening up my google docs i don't really know how to start 
mm. especially once I had uh, all, all my okay the most important thing is to transcribe transcribe the your your interview uh, when you start writing the stuff that they say onto a piece of paper or through Google Docs you 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 somehow you can get ideas flowing in right there when you, when you suddenly you can realize okay this important is this stuff this stuff that he just said is very important to be ended up in the story and whatever he says just here can I can just cut out you can start to edit the story once you start transcribing so I would say transcribing is a is a very important step when it comes to uh, uh, writing your story because it helps with the ideation stage it helps with uh, filtering out the content it helps with um, uh, getting rid of the stuff that's not important and putting in the stuff that is if so yeah essentially um, I, I'm just curious because uh, you're talking about just now uh, someone as high ego and what is the sort of worst interview that you ever had or funny moment that you ever had um, during your journalist career? I would say most of the people that I've interviewed so far are quite normal. Oh, quite yeah. normal. Okay. All right. Yeah, they are okay, okay interviewees because again, research is very important. If if you start researching, you find out there's something shady about this person. You wouldn't, I wouldn't probably interview them in the first place. I see. So I, right. so I have a very huge safety net over there. But I would say one of the most interesting stories I interview. I cannot really say any names. Right. But yeah. All definitely. I know is. Um, I, I'm just like you. I, 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 this was very early in during my career, and because I cover entrepreneurship stories about like how they grow, like, what kind of environment they're from, yeah, basically whatever you're doing. But um, apparently, I asked about work-life balance. I asked this entrepreneur about work-life balance and about his 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 marriage and how you're gonna maintain running a business while also balancing your responsibilities at home. And then he says, can I refuse to ask this question? <laughs> answer oh. this question. I'm like, oh, crap. Because if you refuse to answer this question, almost a quarter of my story is gone because I already prepared so much. <laughs> for life so balance, much. right? Yeah, for life balance. And then when I got back home and after like digging around and asking like some of my friends, my like uh, some property WhatsApp group about this person, turns out uh, he was last seen going to Paris with his chief marketing officer. Uh, <laughs> right. So I think there's some affairs going on, but I cannot really verify it. And right. like, you know what? Maybe it's smart for him to not delve deeper into his family situation. Right. He'll be stepping on a landmine because, yeah, people's personal lives, I don't want to boil it, uh, don't want to bring it up to light. So I'll just probably leave it in the corner. It was a short story, but I probably had enough to actually write an entire full story on it. So it wasn't a big issue. Okay. But I... I would say the most awkward, don't try to involve people's personal life in the stories. <laughs> okay. Unless All right. they are willing. Unless right. one is already highly publicized and they are they know that it's part of the story angle and they're willing to talk. Right. But if bring it up out of nowhere, yeah, it's gonna be very weird and very awkward. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about startup. Um you covered fairly <laughs> okay. one of them in the news. <laughs> yes. What what do you think of startups ecosystems look like in Malaysia? I believe there's a lot of a lot of latent talent over here. Like like a lot of the people that I interviewed so far, they are very technically uh, proficient. Like they have very strong technical skills. Like if not mistaken, oh. actually Malaysia is one of ranked one of the best like in terms of cybersecurity around the world. Like we, we have we have quality talents. Okay. Mm-hmm. The problem is they are there's a distinct lack of it and they are all over the place. 
Yeah, essentially, that, that's the problem with our startup ecosystem. In fact, I give a very simple analogy. If you think about SMEs, mm. uh, you think about Chinese businesses. Uh, businesses. Mm. You have the chambers of commerce. In fact, you have multiple chambers of commerce. In fact, you have multiple clans of like chambers of commerce. You have the Lings, you have Tans, you have the Chans or whatever. Each of them have their own chambers of commerce. The Chinese, like the the Chinese business community, have a very strong support system. With I a see. lot of uh, uh, with very clear like hierarchies where and, and basically okay take for example Petaling Street during COVID nineteen when entire places struck like like closed down everything you have someone from the the Petaling Street committee that the entire area got a, for some reason there's one community representative will come out and make statements on behalf of the entire group. We do not see mm. a lot of that here in the startup community. Yes, you have the MDAX, you have the magics, but they are more of a government association than rather than the voice of the startup community. Yes, you have the SME uh, Malaysia, like the associations here in Malaysia, but some of them are very quite broad. I would say that, like, of course, like let's say the prop, prop tech community, the prop tech community, they, yes, they have their own committee. They, they do issue up press releases, they can speak on behalf of the entire prop, property tech industry. But you will also notice that there's a lot of big names within a, the prop tech industry that is not within the association. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. I would say that the startup community here in Malaysia is very vast and very isolated and very, they are working in silos. But I cannot blame them because again, startups, they don't last long. Like statistically mm-hmm. speaking, it's a sad truth is that most startups do not last beyond like a few months or a few years. So what's the point of having like them congregate together to support each other for like, something like that? You know, like what's the point if you're gonna mm-hmm. pull down like a few months later? But I think that is that shouldn't be the case. I think even for startup communities, even for small groups, they should really seek out uh their peers. They should really come together and share their stories. You know, because like some some startups like. Maybe maybe these startups feel precisely because they are work, they are working in isolation, you know. Now, if I they see. were to come together, they have to share their business model and most importantly find quality talents. A lot of these services they actually complement each other, you know. Like maybe two startups find out, hey, actually your service is quite similar to mine, and we may we can actually combine some of our features together. Why not we just form a company and call it a partnership or something like that, or we do an MOU. Maybe I believe that a lot of startups can actually like dig themselves out of their graves by pure fact of just meeting other like-minded people, which is right. a problem that I see in the industry lah. Currently, as of right now. Right. Um. When you interview successful entrepreneurs, what is your first impression about them? What do you think that makes them stand out? First of all, I do not see people as successful entrepreneurs. Ah. Okay. I. Because again, the, the the term successful is very very subjective. Right. Like, like this person might have a billion dollar business, but he has a rack at home, mm. and he's less happy than a, than a person with his wife. Like, I do not consider this someone as very successful. I would consider uh, I would see entrepreneurs at different stages in their career, or maybe uh, working uh, working in working as or owning different uh, companies of different skills and different levels. But I do not consider them as they are di- they are from different circumstances. But one is no less successful than the other. What was the question again? <laughs> um, what is uh, what do you think that makes them stand out? I would say that. I mean, I used to ask this question in the past as well. Like looking at all the very successful people in the world, what do they have in common? What what was yeah. the key secret ingredient that makes them successful? 
But after like asking that question for around four or five years now, I come to the conclusion that there's no key ingredient. There's no there's no such thing as a as a type of personalities that will make someone more successful than the other. I would say that one thing they all have in common is luck. Mm-hmm. Like one one thing that many entrepreneurs fail to recognize is the role luck plays in many things. Like like all of them are very lucky in in many ways. Like to be in the position where they were, they like to have the educational background that they have. For those people who do not even have very strong educational background, they are lucky to have many things that fall into place in the right manner for them to become as successful as they are. Yeah, so so yeah, I'll basically just say they're lucky. And what uh what makes some so-called entrepreneurs more successful than others, I would say is probably their ability to capitalize on their luck. When when the opportunity comes, they just take it because they're right. ready for it. They have the resources to do so, they have the money to do so, they have the mental wit or whatever, ed- education-wise, the, the everything they have prepared. And once the opportunity comes, they, they pounce over it. Well, there are some mm. people they are less prepared. They, they are, they're less prepared, but they, they need to be much more lucky to compensate for that. <laughs> you know right, I mean? right. Because uh, I see, because interesting you talk about luck, because I also sort of have the same view too. Um, I, I When I, you know, go to conference and I watch videos about entrepreneurs, they always talk about hard work, but they rarely or probably never even mentioned about luck, you know. But um, I think luck play a major role in in one's success too, especially in entrepreneurs uh, in entrepreneurship world too. Um, so interesting that you bring it up as luck is uh, what makes them stand out beside other things. Also, they do prepare and take the opportunity, etc. Um, what are some of the advice, uh, best advice you receive in a career or in your life? I don't think there is such a thing as a best advice because mm-hmm. I think advices. Uh, accumulate across time and there's no one again there's no such thing as a secret formula where if I just follow this one advice and that suddenly my life will change right. it's about a series of minute minute changes mm. and and a lot of people have given me a lot of advice across the years and it's very hard to pick out any one of them I see all right we almost reach out to um, the end of the session so um, I'm going to ask the last question and the last question is Uh, do you have any book recommendation that um, sort of that you like or things that everyone should read? And can you um, recommend to us or tell us more about the book? This is funny because I think because we're we're having this recording on Sunday. On Monday, issue come out on Digital Age. I think there will be a listicle about book recommendations, which I have prepared. Oh, <laughs> so, interesting. So, I can yeah, go to that one. I have a, <laughs> yeah, I have a list of book recommendations. But of all the books I have so far, I think a very... I wouldn't say the best book that that changed me forever. I would say that Malaysians don't, from my understanding, a lot of people do not read. I right. would say a very a very easy, comfortable book for very busy people to get into while still getting the most out of it. I would say probably is uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree by Eric Barker. Oh. Especially for entrepreneurs, because there's a lot of things that we kind of assume about 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 successfulness like what you mentioned about so-called successfulness there's some concrete ideas that we have but there's also a lot of conflicting information that we've seen so far uh, take take for example a very simple example should, should entrepreneurs be be aggressive and be assholes essentially or they should be nice people which one is much more likely to become successful you have case for and your case against you know what i mean right. or not 
Yeah. And there's a lot of scientific like justification goes behind it. But yeah, that book that book addresses a lot of these misconceptions in life. Uh, what defines as successfulness or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Barking up the wrong tree by Eric Barker. That would be a very good book. I recommend. All right. Uh, interesting. The, so uh, I think we already end of uh, the session. Um, that's the last question I'm going to ask. Uh, thank you so much for coming over to this podcast, um, accepting my invitations. For anyone who currently listening to this podcast, um, you guys can follow me on Twitter at Shamiambrian underscore. I'm quite active on Twitter. And you guys can also obviously follow this podcast uh, on Spotify. And you guys can also uh, please subscribe for free for my Substack. Um, I write a few articles there, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly. Uh, you can go to shamiambran.substack.com. Um, yeah, I think that that's all. Um, thank you very much and have a nice day. Bye-bye.